from the Playboy Club in Chicago to the Vatican in Rome, sex oozes out the pores of our culture. It is a vital facet of the new morality. Called by one theologian the last frontier, in the last decade sex has become the object with which this culture is preoccupied. Some have called America the sexual nuthouse of the world, the most sex-possessed country in the world. It is true that in the last 30 years we have seen a dramatic shift in the sexual morality of our society. In more ways than one, we have exchanged the ankle-length dress for the polka dot bikini. And some have called this age in which we're living the hurricane of the sexual revolution. But one way out front teenager said that it is more than a sexual revolution. Said he, we're seeing the old restrictions that have always bound us go down the drain. And we are beginning to return to sex in the loud rebellion against the sterile society which we grew up. Hugh Hefner, the editor of Playboy magazine, in speaking or commenting on the sexual revolution, said, What we are seeing is an indication that we are just growing up and coming of age sexually. And we're finding the healthy pleasures of life without the old restrictions of the past. But the church has always confronted these concepts of sexual morality, even when this letter was written in Thessalonica. For the Bible was born out of a culture that just kind of took it for granted that a man would satisfy his sexual desire outside of marriage if necessary. And, and so the pressures upon the church and upon the Christian to yield to these loose standards that have been accepted in a society as long as man has been here have just been astronomical. But in Thessalonica, they knew what God wanted and required. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul was constantly reminding, of, reminding them of it, having known that this church was born in that Greek culture of sexual license and freedom. And he reminds them again in this text. I propose that it's time for us to speak concerning the Christian meaning of human sexuality. It seems to me that part of the problem of the total picture has been the silence of the church on this subject. And so from the pulpit and from a program of Christian education, I believe there needs to be communicated the biblical theology of sex. What is the meaning of the biblical revelation concerning this delicate subject? 
Well, first of all, the Bible talks about the sacredness of personhood. And God recognizes the sacredness and the integrity of personhood. And sex is a part of what it means to be a person. In the Genesis account, it is declared there, it is stated there, that sex is a gift of God from man for the fulfillment and completion of man. God created man in His own image, says this record. Male and female, underline that, male and female created He them. So that in the Genesis account there is this clear statement that sex is a gift of God for the fulfillment of man, that the woman was created for man's fulfillment and she found her fulfillment in Him. For man does not truly exist except in relationships. He finds himself in relationships. No wonder the Bible speaks of the sexual relation as knowing. So that sex is a gift of God for the completion and fulfillment of personhood, which is sacred to God. Now, of course, there are some implications of that statement. The first is this, that sex is not evil. The proposition that sex is the original sin in the Bible cannot be substantiated by the Bible. Not even in that oft-quoted passage of Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, where he exalts the gift of celibacy. Can you find any indication that the sexual drive is evil and sinful? Romans 1 does not present the sinfulness of sex. It presents the sordidness of sex that is perverted by sin. Sex is a gift of God for man's fulfillment. It is for the good of man so that it is right when the author of the Genesis record comes to the end of the account of creation, which includes the the creation of human sexuality and says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. But just as in every other human drive, God has given us a, a legitimate means for its expression, a marvelous gift if it expresses in marriage companionship and love outside of marriage it exalts itself to a position first that God never intended for it to have my backyard is a St. Augustine lawn now my front yard is not that pretty but the backyard is St. Augustine I love that kind of grass And there's a big, rich, deep turf in my backyard of St. Augustine. It is both useful, purposeful, and attractive. It is useful because it comes up to the walk in the back of there at our patio, and it keeps us from tracking mud into the house. It is beautiful just to look at. But if I dug up a square yard of that rich turf of St. Augustine grass, and I brought it in and I placed it, shook it out and placed it on the thick white carpet of our formal living room, it would not be in place. Useful and beautiful when it is in its place, out of its place, 
it is, not, it is neither beautiful nor purposeful. And so is the gift of human sexuality within the limitation of the, and the framework of God's divine will. It is both useful and purposeful. Outside of that framework, it is not. The second implication of sexuality and personhood is this. It is not simply for the procreation of the race only. Now some theologian, Augustine, the great Roman Catholic theologian, contended that sex was only for the procreation of the race and said that the woman and the man, though married, if, in, if enjoying the pleasure of human sexuality, had that kind of an experience other than for the procreation of the race, they were guilty of the sin of adultery. But that is not the biblical word. It is the gift of God for knowing and companionship and the expression of a deep and profound love. The third implication of sexuality and personhood is this. That when a sin occurs in this area, it affects the person of man as no other sin affects him. Now that's what Paul is driving at in that passage concerning immorality, and that's what he writes about and contends when he says that a sin in this area affects the personality as no other sin. Interpersonal relationships are changed because of this so that the couple can never go back to where they were before. You sit sometime at the pastor's desk and you listen to you listen to the anxieties and the griefs and you watch the tears come out of the eyes of people and you listen to them as they struggle psychologically with the problem of immorality and sexual sin in their life and you will know that there's no such thing as casual sex. You will understand that to sin in this area will affect you as no other sin will affect you. What does the Bible say about what is the biblical revelation of human sexuality? It says that man is sacred, his personhood is sacred, and sex is a part of what it means to be a person. Secondly, the Bible declares that it is out of agape love that sexuality has its deepest expression. Now, sex cannot be equated with love. They are not the same. I used to pastor in, um, down near Wichita Falls and Shepherd Air Base, and I had a young... Um, Airman, who was a member of my church, he told me one time, he said, I got off of work and I got in my car and I was driving out of the base, headed out the uh, gate. And he said, a norther had blown in about middle of the afternoon. He said, it was just bitter cold. And he said, I saw this young uh, female airman walking along the side of the road, headed to her dormitory. And he said, she was kind of huddled up and, and obviously she'd gone to work and it was just balmy and warm and this norther had blown in and she didn't have anything on other than a sweater. And he said, 
I pulled over to the side of the road to give her a ride, and he said she got in, sat down in the, uh, my front seat, and, and I said, where are you going? And she said, certain, certain barracks. And then he said, she looked at me and said, I'll go to a motel room with you if you want me to. And he said, I looked back at her and I said, you know, I'm a happy married Christian. Why do you do this? And he said, she looked back at me with the emptiest expression on her face and said, I'm looking for love. You cannot equate sex with love. It is true that sex is a profound expression of love in its deepest sense, but it is not love in its deepest sense. And there is no biblical passage that brings that out any more clearly than Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. And here the woman is admonished to be subordinate to her husband on the premise, in the premise, that her husband is worthy of such trust and confidence. And agape love is to be the basis of that relationship because the husband is enjoined to keep on loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And in that marvelous picture and illustration of agape love, there it is. The wife loving her husband in a submissive kind of way, trusting him and placing her confidence in him. And he loving his wife in a, love, in a Christ love the church kind of way. And the qualities of that kind of love are dramatically presented in the text. They are these. That kind of love is selfless. It's unselfish. It's the kind of love that looks out for the concern and the interest of another. It is the kind of love whose first question is not what is my best interest, but what is yours. It is a mature kind of Christ-like love. It is becoming one flesh in the purest sense. And the one flesh relationship of the Bible is the total abandonment of each couple to each other so that they are so close in thought and intent and emotion and spiritually and, and intellectually that they seem as one. And when sex is an expression of that, it's deep and rich and wonderful. It is the beginning and the continuing and the consummating of love in marriage. And it refuses to allow the sexual partner to become an object. Time magazine struck a blow at the Playboy philosophy when it said, there is the implicit premise in the playboy ethic I'm quoting there is the implicit premise in the playboy ethic that woman is no more than an object and has no purpose except to be lusted after and lurched at agape love does not does not allow this to happen in the relationship agape love consists not in the pursuit of one's pleasure are for the pursuit of the pleasure of two without the concern and interest of others in mind. So young people hear me. When he says, I love you, he may be saying, I love myself and I want you for my satisfaction. 
For in agape love, each person involved in the relationship will jealously guard the best interest of the other person and seek to maintain that. And there is nothing more precious to you than your pure virtue given by God. This is the kind of love of which sex is a proper fulfillment. I love you not only for what you are, but for what you're making me. I love you not only for what you are, but what you're helping me to become. I love you because you are able to look beyond the potential fool and weakness in me and lay full hand upon the good that is in me. I love you for the good part that you bring out of me. I love you because you're helping me to make out of the lumber of my life, not a tavern but a temple, and out of the everyday work of my life, not a reproach but a son, I love you because more than any creed could ever do, you've helped me be good. And I love you because more than any, uh, more than any circumstance could ever do, you've helped me be happy. The Bible suggests that it is in agape love that sex has its highest fulfillment. And this is that kind of love. Listen. Love is so patient and kind. Never boils with jealousy. It never boasts. It's never puffed up with pride. It does not act with rudeness or insist on its own rights. It never gets provoked. It never harbors evil thoughts. It's never glad when wrong is done, but always glad when truth prevails. It bears up under everything. It exercises faith in everything. It keeps up hope in everything. It gives us power to endure anything. Love never fails. There's one last thought, please. The meaning that the Bible gives to human sexuality is this. That sex is a commitment that flourishes under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Will you write this down on your mind and never forget it? Our bodies were not made for sex. Our bodies were made for God. Someone said, kind of with his tongue in his cheek, the only thing that prevents Americans from returning to the license of the Greek world is the fear of pregnancy, disease, and detection. And all of these things have been removed. What keeps us from returning to that world? Let me suggest something. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. The belief that God is the master of all of my life the bedroom and the office, the business trip and the vacation, that He is the Lord of all of my life 
and that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that I am enjoined by God to present myself as a living sacrifice on God's altar, holy and acceptable to God, and that I cannot do that if I'm not living His life, His kind of life. The only thing wrong with immorality, with fornication, is that it's just not the way the only thing wrong with homosexuality is that it's just not the way. The only thing wrong with adultery is it's just not the way. It's just not God's way. And I belong to Him. And so do you. Charles Wilburn said that he, that when he was in the service as a paratrooper, they took a little boy in, orphaned by the war, and raised him. And he said they dressed him up in, in army fatigues, and he was just one of them. In fact, he was just about the only, uh, they were just about the only parents he really knew, orphaned by the war. But it came time for him to go back to his country. And so they were preparing him for that day. And they said, Charlie... You've got to go back to your country. We've got to go back to our country. They're going to be coming for you today, and you're to be a strong soldier. You're not to cry. You're to be a good soldier and go on the basis of your orders. And so he braced himself, and he got ready. He was going to be a big soldier when they came, and the jeep came to get him that day. And he started out to go to the jeep as the good, the good little soldier that he was. But halfway to the jeep, he stopped being the soldier that he wasn't. And he started being the little boy that he was. And he came running back and he fell on his knees and he put his arms around Charles Welburn's legs and said, I can't go away. I belong to you. I don't know, I, I, I don't know, um, I'm sure that, that this weekend has been one of the most devastating to you personally as it has been to me, perhaps more so. And we're living now, we're, we're in the midst of what is an incomprehensible tragedy in our community, in our time. It's just beyond comprehension. It's unfathomable. And as I got up this morning to get ready for this sermon and to have a little time of prayer, thinking about you know, how to deal with something that is as vital and as delicate as this, right in the context of something that's very much on our mind that's totally different, the thought occurred to me that it seems to me that the only hope this world has for us to, you know, to live together with some kind of love and happiness and, and, and some kind of an interchange of trust and confidence is that we begin to live under the Lordship of Christ. That we return to the fact that God made us 
And He created us and we're sacred to God and human life is precious and sacred. And it must be regarded that way, both as we look at others and as we look upon ourselves. And only when we return to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will we ever have the blessing of God, peace and happiness, goodwill. An obedience to God that goes deeper than our own personal desires and drives. This and I'm through. In the Arabian desert, the training of those great horses in the Arabian desert is a tedious and exhausting task. They take those horses out in the desert and they train them for days. They put them through the paces and then, and then they bring them to their final test. And it's this. They make them go for three days without water. And then the trainer takes them out into the desert in full sight of water and turns them loose, sets them free. And these great creatures begin to race to the water just before they are at the edge to plunge in to drink. He blows the whistle. And each one of those horses that stops full in its tracks and refuses to drink passes the test and is ready for service. And they stand there quivering, starving for a drink, but absolutely obedient to the Master. It seems to me that God's will and God's Word is this, that a man live his life in absolute obedience to God in every area of that life. In his finances, in his relationships, in his attitudes, absolutely obedient to God. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, because of the fall, we are fallen. All we like sheep have turned to His own way and have gone astray. And we've made our choices. We've gone our way and we've done our own thing. And our world is witness today to the fact that men live their way. I pray, O oh my Father, O oh my Father, I pray that You'll return us to the God who made us, to the book You wrote, to the way you want. Turn us, O oh Lord, before it's too late. And I pray for this sacred moment, Father. I pray that You will deal with us in absolute 
obedience. May we be absolutely obedient to your word and your will. Because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, listen carefully. We'll just ask you this morning to be obedient to God. Your coming this morning is a, is a step of obedience. Does God want for you to place your life in Him to trust Jesus? That's why Jesus died. Have you ever trusted Him? Trust and obey. There is no other way. Would you come trusting Jesus this morning? Placing your faith in Him. Would you come in obedience this morning to place your life here in this church because it's where God wants you to be baptized because that's what God commanded? Or perhaps today you would just come to say, be willing to be honest with yourself and God to say, I'm not living in obedience to God. I'm not trusting God in these areas of my life, and I want to be obedient there. I want to come just to rededicate myself to Him. Would you, would you just come as we stand, as we sing? One time I preached this sermon and I think it was in Fort Worth and a young lady came and she said, Pastor, I, I was afraid when I came down that you would assume that I was guilty of what you've been talking about this morning. And the people would think that. But she said, I'm really not. I'm, I'm living for God in that way. But she said, there's another area of my life where I'm really not obedient to God. 
And I want to come, she said, and just surrender that area of my life to God. I want Him to be Lord of all my life. And that I can't boast of being right with God in one area if I'm not right with God in every area. Maybe, that's, maybe that speaks to you this morning. I sense that God, has, God is speaking to our hearts today and God is dealing with us in certain ways today that, where we've not responded. While we sing another verse, would you be willing to come? Would you have the courage to step out and say, I just want to let the Lord be the Lord of my life.